The reading is taken from Luke 13, 22 to 30, page 1047 of the Church Bible. The narrow door. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast, at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, There are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. There ends the reading. Yeah, on a Saturday evening, so they were busy. Thank you so much uh, for reading, Antoinette. And if those Bibles could remain open, that would be helpful. I felt a little bit uncomfortable having another John around. I thought I was going to be asked to do it bite-sized as well, but I'm glad. Um, but he's, he's younger than me. He hasn't got an H in, in John. But if you were here last Sunday and have been looking forward to Daniel chapter 8, following on from chapter 7 last week, I hope you were not too disappointed that our reading has come from Luke. Um, after our seven weeks in the book of Daniel, we return to Luke's gospel. Um, if your memory is better than mine... Uh, you may remember that we were in Luke in January. We began our series in Luke, uh, starting from chapter 9, where Luke begins his record of Jesus' uh, journey up to Jerusalem. And he takes ten chapters of his gospel um, on, those, on that journey um, up to Jerusalem. And over the next um, eight weeks, we will progress... Uh, to part way through uh, chapter 17. Um, and through these nine chapters, we get um, Luke gives us occasional reminders that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And it, we have one of those uh, right at the beginning of um, today's passage in verse 22. Uh, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. But before we get really into the passage, uh, allow me to pray. Dear Father God, we thank you again for the opportunity uh, to read and and study this account of some of Jesus' teaching on on that journey, that long journey up to Jerusalem, Father. Please help me as I uh, teach this passage. Please help each one of us to be attentive, uh, to know what you want to say to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so the question uh, Jesus is asked in verse 23... Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? 
And Jesus responds in a familiar way for him. He chooses not to give a straightforward, direct answer. That's not to say, of course, any question was too hard for Jesus or he just wanted to avoid answering questions. But he would often get the person thinking so that they're able to answer their own question. At times, of course, he did that uh, through a parable. And then at other times, Jesus would want to teach a truth that went beyond the simple question asked. All good teachers will will use both these techniques, and of course Jesus was the very best teacher. And here, he uses that second technique. He could easily have answered the actual question, yes, only a few will be saved. For that is what Jesus had previously taught during the Sermon on the Mount. Um, If I can just remind you of a couple of verses from the Sermon on the Mount. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. But Jesus knew what the person was thinking, and he knew the question that should have been asked. How can I be saved, or how can anyone be saved? But the question asked of Jesus was, are only a few people going to be saved? And the motive for that question was fairly obvious. The questioner was looking for affirmation that, yes, only a few people would be saved, just the Jews. No doubt they realised that there might be a few nasty characters amongst the Israelites who possibly wouldn't be saved, and possibly a small number of non-Jews, Gentiles, who might just be allowed to squeeze in to take their place. But by and large, the thinking at that time was that salvation was for the Jews alone. The question knew that they were a privileged people, and they presumed on their salvation. And Jesus had to put them right. And so he proceeds to speak about the narrow door and tackle that more crucial question he would have wanted to be asked. How can people be saved? It was a crucial question. Uh, The most crucial question for those hearers, for the Jews in Jesus' day, but the most crucial question for every person since in every nation and of every generation. How can people be saved? So let us look at what Jesus says about the narrow door. He gives us a command and then he explains the consequence of obeying the command or or ignoring it. So first the command, the narrow door. Strive to enter it. Strive to enter through the narrow door. Our church Bible um, uses the word, make every effort. I've chosen strive, which is used in other versions, partly because it's one word instead of three, partly because it begins with S, and some of the other words begin with S on the PowerPoint. But more importantly, I think it's a better translation of the Greek. The Greek word is agonizarmai, or something like that, which means to labour, and we get the word agonise from that. Of course, in speaking of the narrow door, Jesus is referring to himself as the only way into the kingdom of God. The Bible makes that very clear, and Jesus himself spelt it out very clearly. 
when he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. But we have to ask, why Jesus is talking about the need to strive? Salvation is a free gift from God. We are saved by God's grace through faith. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. And so Jesus cannot be instructing the people to strive and labour to make themselves good enough in God's eyes before they will be allowed through that narrow door. And likewise, he cannot be telling them to labour away at doing lots of good works to outnumber the wrong things they do. Jesus is definitely not advocating that. But that is the way most people think, so long as their good works outnumber their their not-so-good works. They will be safe. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus' key message to the people was, the kingdom of God is at hand, Repent and believe in the gospel. The message was necessary because the Jews' beliefs were wrong. They believed that as they were well connected to Abraham and Moses and to the prophets, and as they, by and large, observed uh, God's laws given to them through Moses, then they felt they were assured of entrance to God's kingdom. For them it was that simple but they were wrong. Their thinking was wrong, both in what they believed, thinking that as Israelites they were in a privileged position, but also in the way they lived, observing the law of Moses. Observance of the law was not enough. Their basic problem was the contradiction between their outward righteous acts of observing the law and the unrighteous state of their hearts, where they would harbour thoughts that didn't reflect some of their behaviour. So whilst God has not set imaginary levels of righteousness and good works that we have to strive to attain in order to be accepted into the kingdom, neither is it a simple matter of saying, I believe in Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins, and I'm really going to try harder. Both belief and repentance require every effort. If they are necessary for entry into God's kingdom, as Jesus said they are, he would not have given that commandment to make every effort if no effort was needed. So firstly, belief. How do we make every effort to believe? We have to understand what we truly believe and what the Bible teaches about Jesus. We run an Exploring Jesus course for that very purpose, to help people to an understanding of who Jesus is, why he died for us, and why we should follow him. But belief is far more than building up knowledge about Jesus. Some people may choose to learn the Apostles' Creed which is a statement of biblical truth. Everything in the creed is true. But knowing those facts does not make anyone a believer. And we do not become a believer in Jesus by demonstrating a knowledge of all his teachings or even a complete understanding of all his parables. 
It's not like learning the highway code and using that learning to pass the driving theory test. So what is belief in Jesus? The belief in Jesus that is required to access that narrow door is a belief coupled with a longing for a personal relationship with him. I wonder whether Nicodemus is an example of someone who made every effort to enter through that narrow door. You will remember that uh, he was a ruler of the Jews and a member of their ruling body, the Sanhedrin. He knew, he'd heard about Jesus, he knew that Jesus must be a teacher sent by God. But he wanted to know more about him. He went out of his way to meet it with, up with him at night time, possibly to lessen the risk of any of his fellow leaders seeing him in conversation with Jesus. That would have been a real embarrassment. We don't, we don't know for sure, but two later references in the Gospels would suggest that Nicodemus may well have become a genuine believer, gaining entry through that narrow door. And possibly it began that night when he sought out Jesus to really understand more. I said that both belief and repentance require effort and striving. And so what about repentance? What is so hard about repenting? I think there are two things that make repentance hard. There are sins that we want to hold on to. We don't want to repent of them. Rather than let go of them, it's much easier to offset them, so we think, by piling on the good works. We put all our efforts into them, hoping that they will so impress God that he will turn a blind eye to those sins which in our eyes hardly count as sins at all. And perhaps one of the greatest sins is a refusal to obey the greatest commandment, to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul and with all our mind. We want one foot in God's kingdom, or perhaps even a bit more, but keeping one foot in the world. And secondly, repentance demands humility. And who doesn't find it hard to humble themselves and acknowledge their sins? Not sins generally, but sins specifically. Surely the one thing more than any other that keeps people from going through that narrow door is pride. Indeed, it stops people from going anywhere near the door. Well, the command is to strive to enter, but there is a warning alongside that command. Do so before the door is shut. And when the door is shut, it will be shut fast. It will remain shut. It will not reopen to let anyone else in. We've all had the experience of running for a bus. The driver closes the door just as we get to the stop. It seems to be happening to me more often than not. I'm not running so fast. But a gentle tap on the door and a smile usually work. The driver opens the door, unless he's had a bad day. Likewise, if we get to a shop on the stroke of closing time, we may well be let in if we're a valued, valued customer and are not wanting more than 20 or 30 items. 
Or can you imagine our welcome team shutting and locking the doors at 10.15 and not opening them for anyone? Of course not. We're accustomed to believing that we will usually be accommodated when we are late. And perhaps even when we miss a deadline. When we are told that the half-price sale must end tomorrow, we often expect it to be extended and it's usually replaced by the 75% off sale. But when it comes to entry into God's kingdom, let us not think that shut does not really mean shut. The opportunity to enter through that narrow door exists only until we die or until Jesus returns. Some here this morning will have every reason to be confident that they have more birthdays ahead of them than they have already celebrated. I've recently realised that's no longer true for me. And of course, one's confidence about future birthdays is only relative. What creates the greater urgency is the entirely unknown timing of Jesus' return. He could return while some here may be alive when he does return. We may all be alive when he returns. He could return before we meet again. Let there be no misunderstanding about the urgency of Jesus' command. Strive to enter the narrow door before it is shut. And what is the consequence of obeying Jesus' command and the consequence of ignoring it? We will either be safe or we will be stranded. Verse 24. Many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. I interpret that to mean more than those inside. And the Bible, the passage makes absolutely clear. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open the door for us. This is different from John, what John was saying earlier about persevering. There will be nothing to be gained from persevering when that door is shut. All the banging, the pleading, the shouting will be in vain. What is so distressing is that the stranded are are not the many, many others in the world who have had no time for God and even blatantly turned their back on God or even dismissed the idea that there is a God. No, these people, these are people who were confident of gaining access to God's kingdom. But they were on the fringe. They were misguided in their thinking as to how they could access the narrow door. Some were so close and yet so far. The stranded will have heard a message such as this message today possibly many times, and they decided that they were already safe. 
they failed to strive to, the, to enter the narrow door. And people will shout out their reasons why they believe there's been a mistake. Reasons such as, I was a church member for more than 30 years. I never missed a Sunday. And I taught in the Sunday school for 16 years. And another, but my husband was a vicar for more than 35 years and I served faithfully alongside him for the whole of that time. And another, but I raised thousands of pounds for the church. I raised thousands of pounds to help starving and orphan children all over the world. And there will be many, many, even in this country, who will say, but I was born in Britain, and that is a Christian country. But there will be no mistakes. How would Jesus respond to them, those people, including some, no doubt, who will have attended this church over many years? We see this awful response in verse 25. Awful not in terms of what Jesus does, but awful in terms of those who receive the message. He will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. What a tragedy that people who believed that their eternal destiny was heaven should be told by Jesus, I don't know you. Can I just ask you to turn back to the Sermon on the Mount, page 972, and we'll read those two verses I quoted earlier. Page 972, Matthew 7. Matthew 7, at the top there, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And then verses uh, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day... Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Amongst those whom Jesus does not know will be some who will claim to have prophesied prophesied in his name and driven out demons in his name. But why would Jesus say that, I don't know you or where you come from? Because they did not know him. They knew of him and perhaps thought they had a very strong connection with him. Perhaps they did have a connection, such as someone who is married to a believer. Others have been very, may have been very knowledgeable about Jesus' teaching, perhaps even gained a theology degree and gone to one of the best um, best colleges, best theological colleges, an evangelical college. But the all-important personal relationship with Jesus was missing. 
What will it be like to be shut out of God's kingdom? Verse 28 gives us just the smallest of hints back in Luke 13. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God but you yourselves thrown out. And then in verse 29, it's reinforced that God's kingdom is not exclusively or almost exclusively for Israel, but true, genuine believers will be welcomed from every tribe and every nation, from east and west and north and south. Yesterday I was reminded of a hymn that I probably haven't sang for at least 20 years. Two of its lines are, there is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea. They remind us that although the door is narrow, that is not a reflection of God's mercy. His mercy is wide. The hymn continues, the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is most wonderfully kind. That reflects something that the Apostle Peter wrote when speaking about Jesus coming back. He warned the believers that there would be people who would scoff at the idea that Jesus would come again on the grounds that he hadn't yet come, which rather a foolish argument, he was only going to come once. But this is what Peter wrote, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he has been patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I wonder how Jesus will feel when those people are excluded from his kingdom, how he would have loved to have had them uh, into his kingdom. Perhaps it was God's purpose that we should come back to Luke's gospel. And this passage today, um, perhaps it was God's purpose that one or more here this morning need to consider whether they will be safe or stranded on that day of judgment, whether they are at risk of those awful words, I don't know you, away from me. If you are uncertain whether Jesus will welcome you or turn you away on that day of judgment, please speak to one of the leaders here this morning. There is nothing more important in life than this. Let me pray. Almighty God, thank you for the reminder from your word that such is your patience, your mercy and your love, that you do not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Once again, we thank you that our repentance and our forgiveness has only been made possible by your son, sacrificing his life to pay the penalty for our sin. I pray for any here to whom you have spoken this morning and especially any who need to turn to you in repentance and in true belief. Please enable them to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.